Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Today I'll be sharing on God's plan for Christ's return. This comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. Last time I preached uh, from 1 Thessalonians, we got through chapter uh, through chapter 4, verse 8. And the focus was on holy living, God's wills, your sanctification. And this morning I'll start at verse 13, skipping over verses 9 through 12. I had a little bit of a hang-up with those verses because I felt like they really belonged with the previous subject, but I kind of ran out of time, and or I was afraid it was going to be too long, so I, I let them hang, and they don't really fit very well with this morning's subject, so I'm going to let them go for now. If I go on to 2 Thessalonians, I might um, revisit these verses, because Paul has to revisit this subject. In 2 Thessalonians, it's the third time he has to tell them to not be idle. They have an idleness problem. And the only comment I would make on those verses is just that Holiness is, is not just about being free from immoral behavior. It's also about contributing to the church and not being a parasite, not being a busybody, not being an undisciplined person. Anyway, starting here at, at uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul describes... God's plan for Christ's return, that uh, Christ is going to return for his saints, whether they are dead or alive, he's, he's going to get them and bring them back to life, and, and Paul's bring their bodies back to life, and Paul is going to respond to three questions that I think uh, the Thessalonians had these questions, some of them. And many, many Christians would still have some of these questions. For example, what happens? What will happen to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? These days, that's a lot of people. When is Jesus going to come back? Every Christian wonders about this. How should we prepare ourselves? And wouldn't it be easier if we knew more specifically when Jesus was going to come back? We had a more clear answer. And the answer to that one is probably no. Let's start reading here in chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We'll pause there for now. 
what happens to Christians? What's going to happen to them? Christians who have died before Christ returns. Paul has obviously done some teaching on the subject of, of the second coming. He's already talked to the Thessalonian church about it. And I have to imagine, you know, is it possible that he was was starting a series or something on, on this subject, was teaching them about this, and at some point, you know, this persecution erupted and, and he had to break it off. You know, there was maybe not time for the Q&A session he was planning on having. And so no one got to ask him the question, what's going to happen to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? Or, that's just my imagination, it's possible that this was not even something they had considered. They may have thought that the return of Christ is so imminent, I mean, it's not even a, a question, that's not going to even be an issue. But then, some of their saints do die. And they're, they're wondering, what, what is going to happen to these people? And the church is grieving, and grief is probably a lot sharper when you don't have answers to questions like this. What's going to happen to them? Are they, are they dead forever? Do they get to go to heaven? Have they missed out on their reward somehow? And, and Paul says, um, you know, he doesn't say stop grieving. He doesn't say that. But he says, you don't need to grieve like those who have no hope. Uh, I have some information for you. And in verse 14, he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. These sleeping saints, this, he's using the word asleep because it's really a temporary state, they will be restored to life. And not just, not just you know, the life they had moments before they died. That wouldn't be very uh, amazing. I mean, someone you restored them to life 30 seconds before they had cardiac arrest thanks, but no thanks. That's, that's not what's going to happen. You're not going to be restored to just, you know, the crippled state you may have been before you died. There are other passages in which Paul goes into more detail about this change. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is probably the best one. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 53, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, which is us, the state we're in right now, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. These changed bodies are not going to be just refurbished. They will not be good as new. They will be completely different. Even at the, even at the best physical health you were ever in, you were still going downhill. Kind of discouraging, really, to think about it. We're, we're all living in imperishable bodies, and they eventually are going to perish. Paul says, you will be raised to an imperishable 
body. And not just, no one's going to be overlooked in this change. The dead and those who are alive will all be changed. And then in verses 15 through 17, he, he points out not only are those saints who have already died, not only will they not be forgotten, they will go first. They'll have precedence. And the Lord himself, not an inferior, is going to come for us all. And we will get to meet him in the clouds. Maybe, hopefully not quite literally in the clouds, but above the clouds. And the best part of this reunion is, is, that, is that it is an eternal reunion. There's, there's not going to be any end to it. So to recap these, these verses here, 13 through 18, we see that, that there are no gaps in God's plans for his saints, whether asleep or awake, someday you will meet him and the rest of the faithful in the clouds. And these thoughts ought to make your grief less sharp when you lose a loved one. You've got hope. Now let's move on to chapter 5, and we'll, we'll read the, the first four verses here and, and comment on them. When is Jesus going to come back? When is this going to happen? Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So concerning the times and the seasons, were the Thessalonians hoping for a little more information? Are they kind of digging for some, some inside? Just, just, just a clue, Paul. He says, you don't really need me to comment on this. You already know that he's going to come back like a thief. No one knows. He, Paul doesn't say it's going to be a long time yet. It could be thousands of years. He doesn't say you're all going to die before Jesus comes back. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, he does say there's going to be a rebellion first. But here he says he's going to come like a thief in the night. And in verse 3, he expands a bit on this illustration. While people are saying there is peace and security, this thief is going to arrive. Thieves, successful thieves anyway, don't make appointments. They don't leave a, a, a voice memo on your phone saying, you know, hi, this is Jack the Burglar, and I plan to be there Thursday morning at 3.30, you know, Keep your, please have your goods categorized according to value. That's not how thieves work. Paul says, you know, just like thieves strike when people are unaware and unprepared, just like people sleeping in their house through the night, having blissful, happy dreams, unaware that even as they're sleeping, the burglar is putting his crowbar in the door. That's how the second coming will be. It's a pretty gripping illustration, really. 
And it's not, it's not an original illustration for Paul. Um, I wouldn't call this plagiarism, but he is repeating what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Now, my, my feeling about Matthew 24, I, eschatology is, is, is a weak point of mine, but my feeling on Matthew 24 is that it is not all fulfilled in AD 70. If you feel that way that it is, then, then some of what I'm saying here won't really work for you this morning. But I want to read here from Matthew 24 where Jesus is telling his disciples, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Paul says, sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. He is mixing his metaphors a little bit. Thieves never come to improve your house. This is going to be a painful surprise for many people. And like a woman going into labor, at least back in those days, I'm assuming here, there's really no way to stop it. When we were expecting Sophie, we had, when we were getting close to that due date, hospital bag was packed, because we know when things started, there's no telling Sophie, you know, doesn't suit now, come back later. Still kind of hard to tell her that, actually. So in these, these two verses, Jesus, Paul's saying Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. He is going to catch many people unprepared. And then going on to this question of how should we be prepared? How should we prepare ourselves? I'll keep on reading. Actually, I'll reread verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In these verses, Paul says there's two categories of people. There are children of, of light, children of the day, and there are children of darkness. And maybe a slightly more liberal translation would say sons of light and sons of of, or sons of the day and sons of darkness. The characteristics of these two groups of people, the, the children of, of darkness are asleep. They're, I would take that to mean they're spiritually passed out. They are in a state of unawareness. They're also drunk. 
they engage in drunken behavior. They, they don't have proper inhibitions. They do foolish things. They are reckless. They're not aware of the danger. I, rem I remember a finding a drunk person in Romania on the street in Romania passed out. He was halfway out in the street. Now, if you're going to lie in the street, halfway in the street, be sure it's not your head half. But this was his head half. And, and so I stopped, and, and I think maybe someone else helped me to, to kind of drag him off the street. He was not bothered by the fact that he was in the street, and, and it did not bother him that cars could pass, pass very closely to his head. It was very foolish for him to be in that state, but he was unaware of the danger. Children of the light, on the other hand, are awake. Their eyes are open. They're watching, they're active, they're alert. They are sober instead of being drunk. They make careful choices. And it's not like there isn't danger for them, because there's danger for them too. They're aware of the danger. They realize there are dangerous choices to be avoided. And then in verses 8 through 10, Paul goes on to say, but since we belong to the day... He again says, be sober, put on your armor. Like I said, there is, there's an enemy out there. You're going to be attacked. Now, in Ephesians, he goes, his, his um, list of armor is more extensive and includes weapons. Here it's just defense. He says, for your breastplate, faith and love, that would guard your heart. For a helmet, hope of salvation, to guard your head. And he says, the basis, the, the steel behind this helmet is the fact that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And we should encourage each other in response to this. Now, I want to pick out a few, review a few major points about the second coming and God's plan for that. Uh, so we'll look at a few attributes of, of God's plan for the second coming, and then after that, we'll talk a bit about how we ought to apply these verses. The first point I want to make about God's plan for the second coming is that it is an infallible plan. By that, there is, it is free of faults, no Christian is going to be left behind. Those who have already died are not going to be left behind. This is not something God didn't think of, and now he's going to have to come up with version two of the plan. It's also infallible because Jesus, the Lord himself, it says, is going to carry it out. The Lord himself will descend. He is not delegating this to an inferior agent that might make mistakes. I'm quite thankful that this is not a human project manager in charge of this plan. Even the best ones make miscalculations, and they never get it right the first time. And this is the kind of event that you probably would not really want to have to go through repeated iterations of. Jesus himself is going to carry it out, and he is going to do it perfectly. It's infallible in that he has the resources to do it. Paul lists the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. These are all describing the power with which 
Jesus is going to execute this plan. Over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, tell us again the power that's going to be released here. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So this is an infallible plan. Second point is that it is an unforecastable plan. Unforecastable is not a real word. But I didn't want to use the unpredictable or unforeseeable because those are not true. But we can't forecast when it's going to happen. In these verses that we looked at, Paul saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 24. In verse 38, Jesus said, It's going to be like people in the days of Noah. Leading up to the flood, they were eating and drinking and getting married, and then Noah entered the ark. People weren't rushing around in a panic. It was business as usual. And, you know, there's a sense in which everyone's going to be surprised, I think, because no one's going to say, "I, I figured he was going to come today. In fact, I thought it was going to be this afternoon. But the difference is the Christians know the thief is going to come someday. That's the difference. The, the children of darkness are unaware of this. This is not on their radar. Christians know the thief is going to come. One of the things that has, has gripped me again about this passage is just the simple fact that the re- Jesus is going to return on a day that is pretty much business like usual. I mean, I think there's going to be some warning signs that maybe we're getting into the period of, of the time of his return. I think, I think that may be true. But I don't think on that particular day the sun's going to come up in an unusual way that tells us this is the day. People are going to be going to work, putting gas in their cars, putting hamburgers on the grill, and Jesus is going to return. In Matthew 24, Jesus, he was talking to his disciples when he said, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He wasn't saying that to unbelievers who were, you know, spiritually dark. He was saying that to his disciples. God's plan cannot be forecasted. Thirdly, God's plan is inescapable. Paul says they will not escape. About He says that about those who aren't ready. Each of us is going to face Christ at some point. His plan contains every soul and it cannot be avoided. And the fourth point, I think I'm on number four, is that God's plan is interminable. It has an eternal aspect. It's, it's not, it's working out, is eternal. Then we are alive, Paul says, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's an eternal plan, and it's outworking. Okay, so how, how, what would be some good ways to apply the Scripture? Uh, I'm going to take a bit of a shortcut here, because I think Paul pretty much shows us how the, these verses ought to be applied He shows us himself how we should be applying them. So we're going to review what he says. 
Number one, I would say we should apply this by keeping our helmet of hope on. Hope is a, is a major subject in this passage. Paul talks about it twice. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. And sure enough, at, in times of loss, when we lose someone, when, when a Christian dies and there's a funeral service, almost always these verses are read somewhere at some point in the service. And that is as it should be. That is, that is applying this scripture as it should be. Paul also says, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why did he choose hope for the headgear? Now, I apologize if this sounds just a little bit corny, but it might be because hope is what keeps you from losing your head. So it is, it is, a, it is a protection for um, maybe clear thinking and for um, perspective. Julie and I are listening to this story, this true, true story. Uh, probably many of you have heard of it. It's, it is unbroken. And in this story, uh, I'll try not to spoil it in case you haven't read it and you're going to, uh, but this, this, this happens in World War II. The bomber, this bomber goes down, crashes in the sea, three men surviving on the life rafts, two life rafts. There's these three men, and days go by, they don't have transponders in these planes at this point. You know, there's no emergency signal. And uh, they're floating for, I mean, it's weeks. Two men, two men survive this experience, and one does not. And the difference, the author uh, kind of emphasizes this, is that the main character and his friend never quit hoping that they were going to survive. They, they kept... Um, you know, they, ne they never gave up. But the, the other character, um, very early on, just just was convinced that they were all going to die, which would have been me for sure. Um, and and he didn't he didn't make it. He, he kind of went insane, and he died you know a good, good bit earlier than the other two. Although he was just as fit as they were, and maybe more more fit in some ways than, than one of them. But he gave up hope. He lost his head. And, and to, to carry that, that illustration back to us, hope is, is our helmet. It's our head protection. It's what uh, keeps us going on when, when uh, things are tough. Thessalonians were experiencing persecution right now, and they needed this message of hope. So hope in your salvation, whatever you're going through, Paul says, Wear this helmet of hope. Uh, a second way we ought to be applying this, this teaching is that we need to stay alert and sober. The goal is not to be ready, is not to come up with this, um, engineer this intersection of events so that my readiness would happen at the same time as Jesus' return. You know, just plan on making these coincide. That is not the point here. 
The point is to be ready right now and every day up to whenever we run out of time. That is what God seems to want from this, from our not knowing. He wants us to live as though the, His return is imminent. And the other thing about readiness that Paul doesn't talk about in these verses is that, you know, sure, there's a point in time when, when which God is going to say time is up for the whole world, but for each of us individually, He may call, our, call us sooner. Uh, and, and that's been most people's experience, right? You don't know when God is going to say your time is up. It's maybe not a cheerful thought, but it is not something we should not think about. We don't know when our time is going to be up. In Romans 13, uh, so, so Paul is saying, be alert and sober. That's how you apply this. How, that's how you be prepared. Be alert and sober. And in Romans 13, I think Paul is expanding on this idea in verses 11 through 14. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So be self-controlled. Abstain from sexual morality. Don't quarrel. Don't be jealous. Make no provision for the flesh. These are all works of darkness we need to put off. That's what being alert and ready looks like. And then the third way we should apply this scripture is, is simply by doing what Paul tells us to do twice. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. And the truth is we all need encouragement from time to time. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is going to come back someday. And we need to stay alert and ready. Satan would like us to lose hope or lose focus. But either way, he's kind of got us. If we lose hope or lose focus, we forget. If we start to doubt that this is a real thing, or we start forgetting that this is a real thing. You know, you can, you can know it's a real thing, but it's kind of out there somewhere. You never think about it. Encourage each other. That's where we can help each other out. We need to look out for each other and encourage each other with these facts about the return of Christ. So what's going to happen to those who die before Jesus comes? Paul says they're going to receive eternal life too. Jesus died for us so that whether awake or asleep, he's not talking about actual wakefulness, but he's talking about alive or dead, so that we can live with him. When is Jesus going to return? Paul and Jesus both so say, when you're not expecting it. And then how should we be prepared? Well, not by trying to be ready on the day Jesus comes back, but by trying to be ready right now and every day by staying alert, sober, armed with hope, faith, and love, and encouraging each other. 
May God help us be alert and ready when he comes. Let's have a song.